Well, as a child, the genealogies in Genesis might have lulled you to sleep, but as an adult, they should absolutely fascinate you. Why, why is it that the ancient texts that are available to us give us a divergent number uh, system of numbers in the genealogies of Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 11? Uh, could the numbers have been could they have been deliberately changed to cover something up? If the numbers in the different texts are different, what does that do to our understanding of the Genesis text? Like, did Adam really live to be 930 years old? How about Noah? Was he really 950? The Septuagint is not an it. It's a, it's a complex animal. Uh, your Jesus was born too soon. He comes on the scene too early, and that's reflected in uh, the Jewish chronology called the Seder Olam. That's the actual Orthodox rabbinic chronology of world history that they accept as authoritative today. Welcome to the Creation Today Show, where we bring together interviews with experts and solid Bible teaching. Your host, Eric Hovind, affirms the ultimate authority of God's Word, the truth of creation, and why it matters to you. Welcome to the Creation Today Show, guys. I'm your host, Eric Hovind. If you're new to our program, we are just on a mission to disciple the world, starting with you. All those stumbling blocks that keep you from living for the glory of God, we want to turn those into stepping stones on your journey to know the truth. If you're joining me from Facebook or YouTube or any of other so social media platforms, uh, Rumble, welcome to you guys, along with our podcast audience and television audience. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, it is a privilege to, to serve you and help disciple you through the truths of what the Bible really teaches. Uh, we really are just a group of people, the Creation Today Partners and I, are a group of people being discipled every week through great conversations that will grow our faith. By the way, welcome to my Creation Today Partners on here. Uh, love you guys. Um, there you are, having to find you here. All right, so Christy and Cheryl and John and man, a whole bunch of you on here, Scott, Tony, Tim. Thank you guys for hanging out with me today. Uh, sure do appreciate all that we get to do together. Huge praise, huge praise. They just gave me a report for last month. How many did we reach through social media? Partners, this is you guys making this happen week after week. Last month, in the last four weeks, our little bitty organization reached 8 million people, which kind of is mind-blowing to me that that many people, when you just go, okay, Twitter, what's the reach? And on Instagram, what's the reach? And I realize that may not be a deep conversation, but it's a touch. It's, a, it's just a point of contact. It's a truth that they got from one of our videos. And I'm just, I'm, I'm so thankful, Lisa. I'm so thankful for you and for Kevin and for John and for Jeff and to Gary, all you guys, for helping us reach the world with the gospel. There's, there's nothing more important uh, to, to me than, than that and fulfilling the Great Commission. Uh, the conversation I'm going to have today, uh, I'm intimidated by. I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm nervous. And it's a good nervousness, though, because I'm delving into things that I don't yet know and don't yet understand. Uh, to help us in these conversations about the genealogies of Genesis is, is, is a guy that, i got to be honest, I, I'm blown away by how much he's studied and how well he presents. Uh, I found him through a friend and started checking out his website. Uh, at, he runs a, the Association of Biblical um, Re, uh, Biblical Research for Archaeology. 
Well, now I'm blanking on it. Um, it's right here in front of Associates for Biblical Research. I did have it right. Associates for Biblical Research. Henry Smith does a great job presenting. You're definitely going to want to get on his website and devour his, his presentations that he's got on there. But Henry, thank you for hanging out with me today and for helping us walk through the genealogies of Genesis to understand them. Really appreciate you being on the Creation Today show today. Well, Eric, thanks a lot. And uh, I, I know a lot of people that stumble with the name of our ministry. It's been around over 50 years, so we can call it ABR for short. So I totally get it. Uh, in, I, I in... like that. I, I, I was thinking ABR. When I first came across it, I've got uh, yes. Charlie Campbell who runs Always Be Ready Ministry. And I always think ABR is Always Be Ready. So I'm like, that's what's in my brain. And I try to shift that over to this that's ABR, right. which is Associates for Biblical Research. Yeah, it's great. ABR for short. And uh, when I'm in social situations, what I do is I don't get into all that. I just tell them that I'm the host of a TV show called Digging for Truth. And that then just is a great way to uh, segue into a conversation about the truth of the Bible. So don't sweat it, my friend. I love it. I love it. Well, I love it that you also do a show in it. And you can tell because when I watch your videos, you do a great job of explaining. And honestly, guys, those that you are, are watching, you're going to be thankful for that because what we're going to talk about today really does need some explanation. Um, and I, Mr. Smith, let me know. I, you, you're familiar with this right here, right? You already know what this is? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I figured. So this is the Adams chart of history that was commissioned yeah. by Congress. And this was actually done based on James Usher's timeline of the world. And you, not necessarily me, you are going to call this into question right here, right? <laughs> so uh, you gotta, you're, we're going to start right off at the top here like that. Well, uh, that's good. I, I thought we'd, that's good. we, we got we to gotta set up the controversy, then we'll back up and explain it, and More. then we'll get back into it. Okay, we got to, so th this is what we're going to try to cover today. There is a question among scholars on, are some of the dates we have ac accurate in, in what we're presenting today? Yeah, so yeah. I, you you would do a much better job of giving us the overview of what's going on, what are we questioning, before we get into this. Okay, so in the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11, you know, we have the list of the patriarchs from Adam to Noah, and then from Shem to down to Abraham, uh, Genesis 5 and 11. There you go, there's a good chart right yep. there. Now, a good old longevity uh, chart. We have numbers in the biblical text, what we call beginning ages. So it's the, it's the age that the next ancestor was born, so in the case of Adam in the Hebrew text, Seth is born when Adam's 130 and all the way down the line. The situation becomes more complicated because uh, in the Greek text, uh, which is called the Septuagint, uh, that number is 230 years. Okay? So it's a 100-year difference. Yeah. Um, and then uh, to make it more complicated, um, we have another tradition called the Samaritan Pentateuch. The Samaritans had their own biblical text that they kept and circulated in their own community uh, where they record the numbers in Genesis 5 and 11. Some of them match the Masoretic texts. Some of them are their own numbers, completely separate, and some, especially in the post-flood period, match the Greek text. So the question uh, has been, and actually this is something that early the early church grappled with more than you would think, Wow. Uh, a number of early writers like Eusebius and uh, others, uh, Augustine, uh, grappled with, well, which numbers 
represent the original text of Scripture. In other words, what are the numbers given to Moses? And uh, how can we sort of get back to the original? And so that's fundamentally what the big picture question is. And one of the things that, you know, I've been trying to present the best evidence for to the best of my ability. And again, big picture, this makes a difference. Uh, Give me some, I'm thinking of a couple, what I think of are like, okay, what's what's the big deal? Why would we care about these numbers? But it actually, it could push us, how much extra time could we potentially need to add to what we've thought of and what I've presented as an accurate history? About how much time would we have to add to this potentially? Yeah, that, that's good. Um, that That's exactly right. So let's just talk about the Greek text um, and talk about the date of the flood, because that's really the big that's the big date. The date of cre- the date of creation is important, but the date of the flood is from a, from an archaeological, scientific, historical perspective is the line of demarcation, right? I mean, that's when we study history, we're really studying what's on top of all those rock layers, right? Archaeology and that kind of thing. So we're talking we're talking about a, about an eight hundred year difference in flood dates, and I'm giving an approximation. So yeah. Uh, if your your usher chronology is 23, 2400 as an approximate, I won't throw out too many numbers because uh, numbers make people's eyes glaze over unless they can see them. So that's funny. So and I and I totally get that. It's one of the reasons why a lot of people don't like chronology. Um, actually, let me say this: people love chronology. Uh, they commemorate dates all the time, and if they didn't, uh, their wives, the men out there, their wives would be very upset with them. <laughs> but when it comes to constructing a chronology of history of the Bible, it makes a lot of people's eyes glaze over. Yeah, like people like like me are very interested because we're looking for correlations between the archaeological record and the date of the flood. So um, we're looking at about eight hundred year difference. So the usher chronology, let's just call it twenty four hundred, and then uh, the the Greek uh, chronology gives you about thirty three hundred BC for the date of the flood. Wow. Give give so, her give her. T- Give or take, so eight nine hundred years, somewhere in that range is where where there's a, a discrepancy between uh, some of the witness, some of the the text. Now let, let me. Okay, I know I'm kind of backing up and still doing big picture. Yep. Are you questioning the authority of Scripture when you say yeah. these things? That's a good question. So one of the parts of my project has been to flesh out, and really for my own in my own journey as a as a as an apologist as a trying to be, you know, grow into scholarship. Um, what is the doctrine of preservation that Scripture actually teaches? You know, we think sometimes about, we assume preservation every Sunday morning, every time we open our Bible. Um, but what what does the Scriptures actually say about its own preservation? And so I began to look into that. Now, let, let's say this, when we're talking about the Hebrew text, we're talking about what's called the Masoretic text, okay? And by and large, an extraordinary work of God's providence uh, has been that he has preserved his word from the original through the Hebrew Masoretic tradition, and we should be thankful for that. In fact, if we think about it, we have, it was the Jewish scribes who kept it, Jewish scribes who uh, rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and yet providentially God used them to preserve 
a good substantial portion of the scripture. So I, I want people to understand in the direction that we're going in our conversation that we have a lot of good reasons to trust the Masoretic text. But in places, it's uh, either gotten accidentally corrupted or in some cases, I think, deliberately. And so the question is, um, has God preserved the original language or words uh, somewhere else? Uh, such as the Samaritan Pentateuch, or in the Dead Sea Scrolls, or in the Greek text. And so the conclusion that I think you can draw from studying Scripture's own doctrine of preservation is that um, it's not one line between the original author and us. It's actually a complex matrix of evidence. Um, Now that can sound a little frightening to some people and that that's understandable if you're not if you're not familiar with it but i actually believe that there's actually nothing to be afraid of what you actually end up discovering is that god's sovereign hand over every scribe every external witness that means somebody who's writing about the bible god is in control of that he preserves it through history through the millennia and only he gets the glory for that, not one group of people, not any particular church or denomination or uh, this particular group of people. It's his sovereign hand over history. So while intuitively we want it to be neat, we want a Bible yeah. that drops out of the sky, right? Because that's easier to defend and that's easier for our intellectual ability. But I've kind of come to the place where, no, it's actually, it's more complicated than that. But I can still have confidence that we have the original text of Scripture. It just comes to us in a way that's more complicated than a simple dropping out of the sky, if you want to say it in a way. So in I hope that helps. It, in one, it does me because in one sense, I think it's better because when we look at the Quran and we look at what Muslims say today, what they did is they got rid of any of the variants and tried to keep this one line. And we look at that and go, that's not good. That's, that is actually evidence against what you're trying to say now because of this. So I agree. The fact that we go from the original to a multiplicity to what we have, that we, and that we have this multiplicity to study, it's it's actually really helpful to look back in that, isn't it? Yeah, it does. And it also prevents where, where there might be deliberate alterations of the sacred text. When it's spread out, God can work around, over, under, and through anybody who does actually change text, or if they change it by accident. So, uh, you know, it gets, it gets del- and there's much evidence of accidental changes that change the meaning of words and that kind of thing. Well, it turns out, yeah, over here the text is is not right, but then uh, God has preserved somewhere else the accurate readings that we can verify. So it, it's just, I find it to be liberating, to be, to be honest with you. It, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but I mean, if God is sovereign the way our the- doctrine of God, you know, doc- theology proper, uh, is he sovereign? Uh, the answer is yes, and that includes over over the preservation of his word, and we should rest in that. Well, um, I, part of me goes, most people got to be thinking, well, that's great for you because you study this. You jump into this and just give me the final one. Give me the one that I need to read, okay? And so sure, sure. I've grown up with King James. I use the King James. Now I use uh, Ray Comfort's Evidence Bible, which he, he for some reason, they, they couldn't, 
they had they changed it over New King James, but uh, anyway, I still love Ray Comfort's Evidence Bible. So walk us through this progress of Genesis 5, Genesis 11. Is it possible that we're missing 800 years? And by the end, by golly, I need to know why. I need to know who did this and why, if that's the case. Okay, so start yeah. walking us through this. Sure, you know, and 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 it's been a it's been a long journey for me. I I should say that you know most of of the work that I've I've done really is a lot of it has been was said in the early history of the church. Um, you know, if you look, especially in the Eastern Church, but even in the West, you know, like for example, you you Jerome translated uh, the original Hebrew text a lot of it into the Latin into the Latin, and the Latin Vulgate became the Bible of the Western Church for a thousand years. I mean, it's a monu monumental achievement. Um, and so Jerome followed the Hebrew numbers that we see in our modern translations today, which was understandable. He, he, that, that was his view about the Hebrew text. Um, but most people that commented in the early church uh, on the numbers of Genesis 5 11 follow the Septuagint. Now, some of them did that. Some of them did that because they thought that the Septuagint was inspired, which it wasn't. Uh, but uh, but others made arguments that weren't just based on the belief of an inspired text, but they made text critical arguments. They made historical arguments. They made uh, arguments that they felt the underlying Hebrew text reflected what's in the Greek. Uh, I'm thinking of a of a Syriac scholar named Jacob of Edessa, for example, in the 7th, 8th century, who, who followed the Syriac text very closely, but rejected uh, the, the numbers that we see today and thought that the Septuagint preserved an early Hebrew text. In fact, he claimed that there was Hebrew text circulating in his day that had the same numbers that were in the Greek text. So, so now that doesn't prove it, but it, it shows you that... Um, there was more going on with this issue in the earlier millennia of the church, which is, um, which is fascinating. You know, it's fascinating, and it fascinated me uh, in my in my journey of trying to, because my my goal was to get to the truth. I mean, yeah. If the if the uh, if the usher chronology turned out to be what I thought was the original text, then that's what I would go with. You know what I mean? Like I'm I'm all right with that. I mean, if that's original, that's what God said, then that's what we should base our our research on based on post-flood archaeology and all that other kind of thing. So it's nothing to be afraid of. Um, it's just a matter of where do the text and historical arguments lie. So th those are just some examples of, of uh, Jacob of Edessa is just really fascinating to me because it's like, you know, you read through the literature and then you read a statement like that and I go back and I go, wait, what did he say? And then I find multiple other scholars who have studied his studied his work. And here's a, this is a Syriac author whose Bible is based on the Hebrew text, and yet he's rejecting the numbers from the Hebrew text when he's going to the Septuagint. So he's not arguing that the Septuagint is inspired, um, right? It's not a simple argument. And he was a really prolific scholar. So I was intrigued by that. Like, and I I think that's part of the point too is that looking back in the history of the church. We have we're so blessed to have the heritage that we have. Uh, that 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 goes way beyond this subject, but it, it's really an extraordinary thing. So, um, did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah, no that that helps because my my goal and and everybody watching my goal, 
I want us to open our eyes. I don't want to step on your toes. Uh, and I realize this may, this conversation may end up doing that to some people. But if it steps on your toes, I just want you to know it's, it may be because you're trying to take a solid stand in the wrong spot. That may be the reason why. So, um, um, okay, so back up, and uh, I want to get into Genesis 5 and 11. The, the, the idea is there are passages where, like you said, for Adam, we have 130 here, and some texts say 230. And I know after the flood, our facts said, I've got 35 on my chart right here, and the Greek Septuagint says, well, it's 135. And um, for Eber, I've got uh, 34 years, and the Greek Septuagint says it's 134 years, and, and that happens consistently throughout here. So so, okay, tell, tell us what you think, what, what the manuscript evidence is, what you think, and then, uh, like, how do, we, how do we make sure we're getting it right? How, do we have enough information where we think we can come down on this is the truth, here's what it should be? Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head, right? And anybody listening to that will go, okay, so that's a discrepancy in time, right? So a couple basic things. It's... it's it, there's no doubt that this is not the result of an accident. That oh. the difference, the differences, uh, are a result of systematic revision. So the question is, who who revised what in what direction? So <laughs> yeah. So and and, like, and how and like right, how and, would you do that with so many manuscripts? Okay. Right. How would you be able to pull that off? That is part actually part of the matrix of discussion. You have to have a theory. Uh, one of the one of the things that I think that's an error in the literature is that people try to explain the, the changes in the numbers by positing these renegade scribes. I call them renegade scribes. So it, a single scribe thought X and decided to change the text. And I and I think that's an inadequate explanation because it doesn't explain how that change, the systematic change across an epoch of time. Right, a long epoch of time. Let, let's talk about post-flood. So from Shem to Abraham, we're talking about hundreds of years difference in the text, either expanding it or shrinking it, depending on which position you take. Okay, That's not an accident. And not only could not have been the work of a renegade scribe, had to be somebody who was in the position to inculcate those changes into their religious community. So you would have to have the knowing they they had this stuff memorized by five years old. I mean, this was yeah. this was throughout. You know, yes, the the the, the rabbis they they taught this stuff. The kids learned this yes. was their textbook for school that they learned. I mean, this is not a a small thing. Yeah, so that that's exactly right. So it's not a renegade scribe situation. I I believe the way that I've thought about this is you have to have religious leaders involved in altering systematically the text. So, and let's say you you took, you're watching and you take the view that it's the Hebrew text, the original. So the chart you put up faithfully represents the original text. Okay, so if a person was taking that position, they have to then explain in detail why the Samaritan Pentateuch was changed and why the Greek text was changed. So whatever position you take, um, you have to give an account for the other changes in those other that's communities. And, so it, and you have it's to, a problem either way. That's right. So, And that wow. was part of what I wrestled with 
Um, because I started out with, you know, first the Hebrew text uh, has to be, I started out with that view, like that has to be it. And then in the literature, particularly, and, I'm, and I have to be transparent about this, in the creation literature, the Greek texts have been slandered so badly um, that I just never even considered it as a possible answer to the problem until I started spending time in the broader literature on the Septuagint, and I discovered that there's a lot of arguments out there that just don't work. Now, I'm not trying to attack anybody personally with that. I'm just saying that that was what I found. So, and and, and yeah. just to be clear and and to be kind of a bigger a bigger picture, and I'm not trying to take us off track. I want to get back to this, but one one of the issues I have as a creationist is from the flood to the Tower of Babel, I don't have a lot of time in what I'm doing right here. I've only got what about 100 years, maybe up to 180 years to get a large population and a whole lot of people. And in what you're saying, it's like, hey, it seems like we could give up to a couple hundred more years to develop a large population for the Tower of Babel. So it actually, it has bigger implications and, and potentially answers some questions. But either way, somebody had to change it, either shorter or longer. One of them had to change. Yeah, and that's correct. So um, now some creationist literature will argue there is enough time and you can make that work. And that's that's found in in some creationist literature. What, and you're making a good point. That's something that has to be addressed. But I put that aside and said, that's a secondary question because that has to do with population calculations and archaeology. And I, so I just wanted to stay with the text proper. In other words, in other words, because I didn't want to be driven, and I have to be honest, I've been accused of this, um, of allowing the external evidence to influence my argument. Yes. When, so what I tried to do was I was I'm obviously aware of like what you just said, but I, I tried to say that's not going to influence the evaluation of the text because you establish the text first, then you grapple with whatever the consequences are. So in so other words, you're not my, going to Egyptian archaeology no. and going, this is what the secular people say about the timeline. How do I... You're not even you're not even letting that influence you. You're saying, what does the text actually say? You're aware of it and you know it's there, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to adjudicate the evidence and come with the best conclusion you can, and then you deal with it. Because look, I mean, if you if you take the flood at 3300 BC with the Greek text, uh, that resolves some external problems, but it, it doesn't it doesn't resolve problems in the Neolithic period. I mean, you've got uh, conventional dates of 5,000 to 10,000 BC. So that all has to be redated anyway. And, you know, upper Paleolithic dates, that some of the dates for humanity go back hundreds of thousands of years. So yeah. you, you, you still have the whole recalibration of conventional dating that has to be done anyway. You're getting 800 years, but it's, only solving a handful of problems. It's not, what I mean by that is, I believe the conventional paradigm is wrong, but we we as the church need to find more answers for get another, get, give an alternative interpretation of the external evidence. But, I, but back to the point, Eric, is I was trying to avoid allowing that to influence me because I wanted to adjudicate the textual and uh, evidence and 
other people that had written about Genesis 5 and 11. So like Josephus, for example, or other early witnesses to the text. So um, not easy to do. You know, you're aware of all that. You're right. You know, you know, that's there, uh, but you're, that's what you're trying to do. So that that was the goal. Nice. Um, I've only got a couple minutes left with social media. Get into some of the, uh, so we've talked about the, the couple different manuscripts that there are and how we have a disc- discrepancy here. Um, can you give me a three-minute or less summary, and then we can kind of go into the, sure. the more of the details? Okay, so let, let's focus on the post-flood period, because this is a little bit easier and I think a little more obvious. The, the pre-flood era is more complex. Okay. Uh, in the post-flood period, the Greek, text and the Sumerian Pentateuch basically match one another for for the chronology, basically. Not completely, but but fundamentally. So the time frame is is quite similar. Um one of the the things that I was looking for was uh, does if the Hebrew chronology has been deliberately shrunk, is there evidence for that internally in the text? Not not externally like archaeology, but internally. And so one of the arguments that I've made is um, Abraham died at the age of 175, an old man and full of years. Now, if you look at the Masoretic chronology and you look at the Genesis 11 chronology, it says that all of those patriarchs had sons and daughters. And according to that shorter chronology, he's living contemporaneously with Arphaxad, Eber, And so on. So the question so yeah, is... Yeah, he's living at the same... Yeah, look, right there on the longevity chart, okay. you can see it. He's living at the same time as as our facts right. had and, and all these guys that are, you know, over 400 yes. years old. Yeah. So is he, is he... And they all had sons and daughters who we can presume lived to similar ages. So the question is, is Abraham, in the context of the post-flood chronology in the Masoretic text, an old man and full of years? And my conclusion has been, I, I think that's actually evidence of an internal problem where he's not an old man compared to his contemporaries. He's half their age. And so that, to me, was something that, not just an intuitive thing, ah, it doesn't seem right, they all live contemporaneously, that's not a good enough argument. It's got to be something that looks like a contradiction within the, within the context of the biblical text. That's a conclusion I've drawn. Now, there's a lot of other reasons why I drew that conclusion. But that's just some food for thought for people to think about. Think about that, not just the text, but the context of the post-flood world. And, you know, that was a big one for me. When I found that, I thought, something's not right here. Let's keep looking. Anything else internally that you go? I'm supposed to let social media go, but real quick, anything else internally? That you go, that was a problem. Yeah, it, it not not to the level of error, but to the level to the level of sort of oddities. Now that's a different level of evidence, so I wouldn't put it in the same category as the one I just said. Um, the co- patriarchs could have lived contemporaneously. It seems a little strange, but it's not it's not an error. Um, but when, when, when God comes to Abraham in Ur and his father is clearly part of the leadership clan that leaves there, um, it, it just seems strange that these other patriarchs that are in the Messianic line would still be alive. 
Um, you know, that that's odd. You would think a new revelation would come to a patriarch um, who's the oldest, uh, or at least close close to the oldest. So, um, again, that it, it yeah. And then also, if you look at Genesis ten and all the cities that are in Canaan when Abraham's alive, there's like twenty six cities in Canaan alone. Is that enough time in the Masoretic post flood chronology to establish all of those nation states? Maybe it is. I I I I I think that's really stretching it, you know? So that's another oddity. Again, not an error, but an oddity in the the way that works. And everything in Genesis 10 that's mentioned, all the cities of southern Mesopotamia, uh, would have to be established as well. Uh, now, I know some of our creationist friends have made arguments that try to fit the plausibility of that in Abraham's timeline, but I'm not, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that works. Um, but again, those are those are out of these. I would go back to Abraham's epitaph and compare it to his contemporaries, and I think that's where the real red flag is internal in the text. All right. Well, I want to get into how when we talk about changing something, it's where, when, why, and how. So I want to get into more of that, and especially the why, because what I've heard you say about the potential why is huge. But I'll have to do that without social media. YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, uh, who else? Rumble, uh, X, I guess. Um, all you guys, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Uh, we really do want to disciple the church, and we want to do that with you. Uh, it is important for us to know why we believe what we believe. If you're watching and you're going, yeah, I just came to see the, the debate about you know what's going on in Genesis because I've heard there's one. Hey, that's great. Let me give you a bigger truth, and it's a complete gift. creationtoday.org slash gift, G-I-F-T. It is a free gift to you. It's the gift of salvation. And there, Mark Spence and I explain what salvation is in a very clear understanding. You are created by God. You have sinned against God. You deserve punishment. You can either pay that or have somebody else pay that for you. But I can't, and nobody else on earth could, unless they lived a perfect life and sacrificed themselves for you. And that's what Jesus Christ did for us. So if you don't know the truth of the gospel and the need to repent and trust in what Christ did on the cross and then his burial and then his resurrection, please go to creationtoday.org slash gift so you can learn about that today. I want you to get a hold of, uh, of Henry's information. You need to go to the Associates of Biblical Research website. Henry, remind me what that is again. Oh, Bible Art. Yep, no problem. BibleArchaeology.org, and that's with the archaic spe spelling A E O in the middle. So, Bible Biblical Archaeology or Bible Archaeology. There it is. BibleArchaeology.org. They just put it in the chat for you, uh, or just search for Henry Smith A B R. It will come up, uh, and you're going to want to get on his on his uh, on his website because he's got several videos that go into this uh, in detail that you're going to want to watch, especially as he talks about the preservation, inspiration of the text, and then what all this means. If you want to join the rest of this conversation, please come on over to creationtoday.org and partner with us. Thanks for joining us.